Hello, and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am unbelievably honored to be joined by Mr. Don Lombardi of DW Drums. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being invited. Yeah. I mean, Drum Workshop is just really one of the most premier brands in drums, and it has been for a long time. I mean, growing up, it was just... I remember, I mean, I was born in 90, and I, every time I would turn on the TV, all of my favorite drummers were playing DW, and it was, I don't know, it just stuck out to me as such a huge brand that I've, I've, I've had some DW drums in, throughout my life, and they are unbelievable. So you've, you've built quite the brand. Thank you. You know, and I want to start off by thanking you. Everybody should realize keeping track of the drum history is so important for every drummer to learn where they've come from, and you always talk about that as I do in often being the interviewer instead of the interviewee, but uh, what you're doing is, is a great service. I think it's important for people to look back not only at the history of manufacturing, but just the history of the of the instrument, which is a little different area that we're going to talk about. But, sure. but a lot of our innovations have come from where the music industry was at that particular time, what drummers were doing. They needed something or we came up with something that maybe they didn't know they needed and they, they used it as, as, as an asset into their playing. And we can go through yeah. some of those products as we as we kind of talk about our history. Yeah, and I mean, so typically with with these companies, it's it's um I'm speaking to someone who's a representative of the company and they may not be the the founder, but today I have the, you know, the 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 joy of speaking with someone who really is the founder of this relatively young drum company in the big picture. Um so maybe we start Don, by going back, because um, you and the company are basically kind of one in the same, um, I think people might be interested to start, before we even get into the drum workshop background, about your background in drumming, um, and then carry it on through through to uh, the history of the company from there. Yeah, obviously, uh, becoming a drum manufacturer you know, led itself out of the fact that I was a professional drummer for many years, and uh, I guess at one point I figured I better do a good job at it because I don't know anything else I could possibly do. So that's one, <laughs> yeah, one motivational I that. factor, I guess, in uh, in growing up and as you grow up and grow older. But uh, I started playing drums, got into the union when I was 16, started playing when I was 14, had a fortunate opportunities of having some great teachers in early teenage years. Growing up here in L.A. Uh, was certainly a huge asset because I could also see all the great players come through. Back in those days, talking about uh, mid-60s, you know, there were clubs and the Miles Davises, the John Coltrane's, they would come by and play in a local jazz club that would house two or 300 people. So you could sit as close to them as we apparently would be sitting if we were in life together, you know, right right, right next to each other. So um, it was a, a, a different time, a different era, and as was the music different, especially as was the drum set being created differently from the early you know, post fifties, uh, end of the fifties, um, bebop came in, uh, Jimmy Chapin book coordinated independence drummer started playing the bass drum, not on one, two, three, and four anymore. If you can just think it's not that far back in, in my parents' times, your grandparents' times when a drum set was approached completely differently. Uh, sure. so, and then, you know, as bebop came in and jazz came in and then fusion, um, and as the instrument progressed, um, the you know the needs for instrument progressed also and as i was growing up um as a as a teenager you can just imagine you know i'm i'm thinking i'm doing pretty good in the chapin book when i'm 14 or 15 and then that's bebop and so that was a very much a jazz aficionado probably overly vocally jazz uh <laughs> and then 
Then you hear Elvin Jones, who approaches it completely different, and it's like, you got to start all over again. <laughs> yeah. So you realize you don't have to start all over again. He's Elvin Jones. Every other drummer is who they are, you know? And yeah. I think drummers play more than any other musician uh, as their personality is. It comes out more in your playing, I think, than it would a cellist or a, a, a harpist or, or a trumpet sure. player, for that matter. Um, yeah. Certainly, you know, creativity flows through all those different instruments, for sure. But uh but your 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 native personality seems to at least all the drummers I know I can kind of relate to the kind of guy they are and the kind of music they play, laid back, yeah. relaxed, intense, on top of the beat, you know. So yeah. So well, I want so, I want to ask you before we move on in your early drumming because it's just interesting because you yourself obviously are synonymous with your your brand. You know what was your first drum set? What were some early not to name drop other brands, but like what was no, no, you know, Don Lombardi playing? There, uh, there was. There was only only the three American companies really back there at the time, Ludwig, Slingerland, and Rogers. And my first teacher when I was 14 was a working professional drummer in town, Nat Leslie. And he was playing, uh, doing some studio work, but playing, you know, in in symphonies and, and more of a, a legitimate player than a drum set player. But he could do both. And he was a Ludwig artist. So he encouraged me to get my first set was a, was a Ludwig drum set when I was 14. I, I played a little bit when I was nine years old at the at the local music store. I saw a drummer on TV and um, I don't know what the name of this show was. And I've asked some people trying to go back looking through, but it was, it was a TV show that opened up with a, with a camera close uh, uh, lockdown frame on the hi-hat, just <laughs> opening the hi-hat symbols, playing the jazz cymbal rhythm. Then it went into the whole orchestra. Then it went into whatever the Colgate comedy hour or whatever the show was. <laughs> but, and I was very young when I heard that, that was like when that was interesting times when, my folks had a TV that was a screen that was this size that, you know, that yep, like everybody was, it was so cool <laughs> to be, to have bigger and bigger, bigger TVs. Here we are all these years later back to looking at our, our three inch screen. But yeah. that just, I just, I wanted to do that. And I said to my dad, you know, I want to go, I want to play that rhythm. I want to see how he does that, which turned out to be quite an advantage from a teaching perspective. I had no idea at the time. But we went to Baxter Northrop Music, which, and I was nine years old, and I said, I want one of those things that goes open and closed and makes the cymbals open. So the guy didn't know I didn't have a drum set or a snare drum or a practice pad. <laughs> I just bought a hi-hat and some cymbals and a pair of sticks. <laughs> so I went home and I got to where I could kind of do that. Then it was like, hey, I'll take a couple lessons. And then I got involved uh, in baseball uh, as a 10, 11, 12, you know, the Little League thing and, and Babe Ruth after that. So it wasn't until I was 14 that I really hooked up and wanted to get serious about learning how to play drums. Uh, and I kind of made up my mind at that point, that's what I was going to do. So never occurred to me how good you had to be or how much you had to practice to get there. But uh, yeah. I then, my local teacher, I then kind of moved on from him. He kind of progressed me on, if you will. And I started studying with another teacher who came into town uh, and just had moved here at that time called Nick Ciroli. Uh, Nick is a name a lot of young drummers out there might not know. If they do, they would know him from kind of his commercial gig. He was the touring drummer with the Tijuana Brass. Hal Blaine did most of the recording, okay. but Nick got the touring gig with them and, uh, and got treated very well by Herb Alpert. It was a very lucrative gig uh, back in those days. They were, of course, a, a, a you know very popular band. Uh, and he was a consummate drummer. He was, uh, um, I, I, I mean, the best thing I could say about him as a drummer is when Mel Lewis decided to leave town. Uh, Mel was the A A list uh, recording drummer in town, a name a lot of people probably would recognize. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he, up in uh, the blue, pretty much the kind of was the talk of the town, within a couple of weeks' notice, decided, I'm going to New York. I'm done mm-hmm. with the studio scene here. I'm moving to New York. Nick came of, Nick as a 23-year-old. Uh, this young kid in town pretty much picked up all of his work. He was the guy that they went to. Mel's leaving, so I'll use Nick. So he was at that, you know, at, at that level, which was way beyond you know where I was at, of course, as a sure. as now a sixteen year old. Uh, and uh, and so I started studying with Nick when I was sixteen, seventeen. When he got the Tijuana Brass gig, he became very uh, busy. He was on the road, and then I hooked up a couple years after that with uh, Freddie Gruber, who I studied with for. Three yeah. years, pretty much steady when I was 18, 19, and 20, but started playing clubs. I auditioned for a band. Actually, a friend of mine said, we're auditioning for drummers. He never told me it was drummers that sing, which I'm not. Hmm. Uh, and I can <laughs> prove that to you at any time you want. But, uh, but and I'm encouraged sure. drummers who are out there who don't sing to learn how to sing. We actually have a course yeah. we just filmed with Nick Virgilio on drummers that sing. So you can actually... You know, don't be intimidated. You don't have to be in the front of the band, but you can get a lot of gigs. Think about all the drummers we know that sing that have those gigs that you don't yeah. think of. You don't think of Abe Jr. as a singer at all, ever, but he's singing. Yeah, you know, he got back up. Singing. So, so, yeah. so yeah. I, I, uh, there's moments through your life to you remember like they were yesterday sometimes. I, uh, he said, we're auditioning drummers, but you want to just come in and sit in and play with the drummers that sing. Uh, again, I didn't know that. So I sat in and played with him. I was 16. I was in high school. I was in my senior year of high school. Uh, and they auditioned a bunch of drummers, and they came back and said, you want to come in tomorrow and play with us again? And I did. They said, here, let's had a microphone there. And I said, I don't sing. He said, well, sure, you just do some background vocals. It was uh, Nikki Sullivan, who was one of the original crickets, and, oh, yeah. uh, bass, and, and another uh, lead guitar, rhythm guitar player, bass player. And they were going to come onto the West Coast and be the West Coast crickets. And he had clubs booked for years at a time back in those mm. days you could play at a club and be the house band in a in a club so uh the end of the, the short story long i'm making it here basically i played a couple tunes with them and they said okay sing some four part we're gonna do a little four part harmony i said i he said just do this so i i tried it and then they said okay wait a minute and they huddled and i thought well i know this isn't going well because <laughs> i know how i sing and I'm not sure, paying any attention. And I, and I was a jazzer, you know, although, of course, I could play that stuff. Um, anyway, they came back and said, look, we're going to do three-part harmony. We'd like for you to play the drums. So oh, wow. I, I worked with them for when I was my last year of high school, actually. My last semester, I was working nights at a club and mm. then going to finishing my last year of high school during the during the day, which turned out nice because band was at 9 o'clock and mm. the band director knew what i was doing so he would let me come in at like five to ten so i get extra sleep and still wow. give me credit for yeah. being in the whole class yeah so so in real then, life uh experience you know so, so it makes yeah. sense and, and in those days uh and then i started teaching also when i was uh, 17 18 i started teaching at local music stores again being fortunate to have good instructors you know they kind of taught me how to play and they taught me how to teach also so uh from yeah. the time i was 20 until i really started DW seriously, which would have been in 81 or 82, I was running 40, 50 students a week and teaching mm. five, teaching rather playing five, six nights a week, sometimes seven days a week because there was casuals you would do on Sunday. Wow. So I could make as good a living staying in town as the guys who were traveling. And when my yeah. son was born, 1969, I wanted to definitely stay in town because I was pretty much raising him. So so all, sure. all the cards kind of fell in. And uh, I uh, this part of the story people have probably read about but uh, 
I was teaching at three music stores in Los Angeles. Um, the primary one was Dick Charles Music in Glendale, where I was running about 30 students, and I had about 20 between my house and two other stores. And I surveyed my students to see how many of them were driving age, because Freddie was giving me students, Freddie Gruber. I was getting some students from other players in town. So about half of my students were older. By older, I mean in their late teens or early yeah, 20s. Sure. And half were school kids that their parents were just dropping them off for their drum lesson at whatever, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. Um, and I surveyed them, and uh, there was about 20 or so that were driving age and had no problem driving to Santa Monica if I wanted to just not teach at music stores anymore and open up my own little teaching yeah. facility. So I uh, started it out at my house, which was way too many people to come to my house. Um, and I was living in a small area in Santa Monica. And it was not legally to do that anyway. Yeah. So then I yeah. found a little a little garage unit, which I rented, and I just had to come up with a name. So I called it Drum Workshop, which wow. the idea of workshop was lessons, had nothing to do with manufacturing. So hmm. I I started giving, you know, I gave lessons to my students there. I was doing like three days a week there, so it was a much easier lifestyle for me. I had a couple of other teachers that came in and gave some lessons. And then the workshop vibe was nobody was doing this, was... Once a month, and I was going to try and get it down to maybe once a week, but once a month I had major players come in. Shelly came in, just would call people who I knew uh, as friends, if not professional playing friends, people I'd run into and just say, hey, would you want to come down and do a clinic? Freddie Gruber did some. Uh, um, Irv Kotler did one. So mm. for a period of months, but there's a lot of extra scheduling and work and effort that goes into that, you know, yeah. also. So so yeah. as as that was going along, I don't know if I'm answering your next question or not, but I'm kind of getting into the manufacturing. Yeah, no, you absolutely are. And and it's just, I love that you have, I, I think it's great when you have this real world experience and this background and it just sort of um, works out that you find your way into creating a brand, which we're going to hear about soon. But, um, and, and I love, I've heard that story about the background with the name of Drum Workshop, but it makes perfect sense that it's, you know, a workshop for lessons but that name also works perfectly with workshop like manufacturing. So well, what, what all- motivated what motivated me, though, the kind of behind the scenes story is when it came time to actually have to have a name for products we manufactured after I bought the dyes and molds of the Campco, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yes. Um, it was like, well, what what do we call this new manufacturing company? And the first thing that went through my mind is I had just printed a thousand business cards that said drum workshop. So could I use that same name? I wasn't so sold on it. I didn't like Lombardi drums because that just seemed funny to me. I don't want to see my name plastered on everybody's sure. drum set. Uh, but, uh, but they were all, all the American drum companies were the names of the people who actually founded them at the beginning. So there wasn't yeah. one that wasn't a name. So that was kind of like, maybe it's weird if it isn't a name, but let's just start out with Drum Workshop till I finish up the cards and see where we go That's- from there. So, so funny. I, I am so much the same way where it's like, well, I got these cards. I might as well. I'm not going to not use them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. I still do that with I'm giving away NAM show cards from eight years ago, I think. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So back up a little bit here and get yeah. us into the the actual like that transition from from lessons to when it all happened. And like you you talked about with Camco, um, I think just prefacing it, too, with let me just ask the question of. Do you are you yourself a woodworking type? Do you have a background in manufacturing at all? I know we know your background now, but you know, on the side, were you, you know, doing some routing in your garage or <laughs> do you have a background I, with that? Uh, the, the answer is no. <laughs> I, okay. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, 
I, I worked with my car as long as the key worked. Otherwise, I was going down to the mechanic. But yep. uh, but I did have kind of a, an inventive side to me, I guess, and a little bit of a business background. My business, my didn't have any real musicians in the family. Had amateur uh, players. My dad and mom played a little bit of piano, a little bit of trombone, just enough to horse around in the in the family room from time to time. But, yeah. Uh, not not really any any you know any pressing desire or or mission to you know to to be a craftsman in that in that area uh, gotcha and so but but in the inventive side of things it comes back to uh, you know the necessity of i guess uh, one thing i've said you know before i guess playing in clubs for all those years uh and i played in a jazz trio for many years uh in a, in a popular club in hollywood at sherry's and and uh and pj's and they were uh, Thursdays and Wednesdays and Tuesday nights, they're not very full, if, if at all full on some of those. So you got a lot of time to sit there and play and look at your drum set. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. What if this went over there or what if this went there? And one of the things that um, studying with Freddie that was so important, and I could do a whole five hours on studying with Freddie, which which actually we're talking about drum channel later. I'm putting together a lot of my history with Freddie on, on a, in a course on drum channel. But one of the things that's important, and you see, Buddy Rich is playing, which is during my time with Freddie, we spent most of those years breaking down Buddy Rich's playing, him getting his insights of showing me what Buddy did. Freddie was a very analytical guy. But sitting sitting up so that you have all of your weight, you know, uh, on your behind and you're sitting with a posture where you're straight up and you have a solid foundation to sit on was really important because a lot of what you're doing with your feet is kind of more of a, a tap dancing method, if you will. So that made me and most all of my friends in those days, I'm talking about the 65, 75, the seat that everybody used was the Rogers seat. Rogers made the best seat back in those days. The Ludwig Sleet, the Slingerland seat, they were, you know, they were a little bit, they were very portable. They were much lighter weight. Rogers had a really good seat. And there was one of the first ones, I think, that swiveled up and down with the swivel, yeah. swivel type seat. So it still had a little bit of wiggle to it, and slop just because it's all rivets and put the way it's put together. So sure. the the solidest seat was what was called the Slingerland, the Buddy Rich, or the Gene Krupa solid seat, which was a, a cylinder that was usually covered with the same finish as their drum set and and a cushion seat top on it. And yeah. and then those seat tops would flop open. For them, I think they made them where they were just they didn't even have that feature because they had drum techs carrying their stuff with them, but. They would open up, and you could put your lightweight hardware inside of it if you wanted. Uh, so that was that made it kind of a, a two two reasons why you would buy that seat. Yeah. But they were twenty four inches high. So to me, it's like, what's the chance? You know, you're going to be the right height drummer that's going to want a, the best seat you could possibly get that's solid, but twenty four is your perfect height. Well, yeah. And and playing in my early 20s in what they call the circuit, which was Vegas, Reno, Tahoe with show bands, um, I had the opportunity to play across the street from where Buddy Rich was playing. So the way our sets ended up, I would be able to get over and go behind his kit during the day and because uh, hmm. it, it wasn't being used in the room. He was playing in the in the big lounge. Uh, and then at night, I got to see him play every every night because I could get off of ours and get to the last set over there for like four or five weeks in a row. That was amazing. Wow. I mean, I, yeah. I saw him play every time he came to town too. But oh my gosh. I, I got to know the, the guys over there um, and I, I could sneak behind his kit and sit down as long as I, 
he wasn't around. Nobody was around. You know, I didn't want yeah. to take, take a chance of getting shot or something. But no. just you know, but uh, just to sit there was a kick for me as a kid. Sure. Uh, and his seat was obviously higher than than the twenty four inches because he he sat where his legs were. He was a fairly short guy, but he sat yeah. where his legs were. Some of the then I had the same situation getting a chance to sit at Ed Shaughnessy's kid. He had the solid seat too. So they were obviously for those people. They would make them at whatever height they wanted because you're making a kit for Buddy Rich or you're making a kit yeah. for Ed Shaughnessy. Um, yeah. So, and I imagine jeans was custom made too. So I just thought, could somebody make a solid cylindrical seat that adjusted? And nobody had done that before. Mm. And I didn't know anything about patents, so I didn't patent it. It would have been a patentable item. But I just, uh, I, I pulled up to a stop sign uh, driving my car and I looked over and I saw this cardboard tube that they were pouring cement in to make a freeway overpass and it said Sunoco on it. So I just went home and looked up in the yellow pages. You can explain what that is later. Uh, (laughs) And, and uh, where you find people's phone numbers and uh, went down and met with them. And I said, you know, I need a couple of cardboard cylinders that I can slide inside each other. If you have anything that's close to that. And we came up with something and I made an adjustable trap case seat. This was in 73, 74, uh, just, just before modern drummer started. So hmm. I, I was making them in my garage. That was my first opportunity at trying to cut things and make things and do something. They're, they're also referred to as uh, canister thrones it, as it well. It was a canister they're, throne. Is that exactly the thing? Yeah, something we're bringing back at DW again, by the way. we're doing. Yeah, I've cooling. seen one here at uh, B- Badge's Drum Shop here in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, how, how did that work where it would raise and lower? Because Well, basically, I, the, the very first yeah. one was very archaic. I just had, I had aluminum posts with holes in them. So you would... And holes in the outside canister, so you would take the bolt out, raise it up, put it in the next hole. Oh, take I see. The bolt. Then we then we made a a uh, an actual frame framework that went on the inside that was a plate, so you could just turn it, raise it up into the next slot, and raise it up into the next slot. So they would Smart. go up and down in inch increments, if you will. Yeah. So so that uh, my first lesson in business, I guess, was I put an ad in what was called the International Musician back in those days. Again, no modern drummer. So if you had a new product. How do you let the world know about it? So, and that was the union paper, and I was a union member. So I could put out my little one by two inch app. I just said adjustable trap case seat. You know, you can adjust it. You can store your hardware in it. And I got a 75, 75 bucks. I get a check from this guy in Chicago, like two weeks later, three weeks later, I get a check from a guy in New York. I say, you know, $75. Wow. I'm thinking, these guys are sending this guy in California a check. They have no idea who I am. I'm <laughs> cashing their check. They have no idea if they're getting this thing. They've never heard of it before in their life. Uh, I called it the adjustable trap case. I didn't have a name. It was Drum Workshop made it. So I just thought, yeah. you know, if you if you fill a need for somebody, I didn't know we'd ever get into manufacturing, but but the, the thought was if you do fill a need and it makes sense to drummers and, and it made sense to me and to my friends that were using them too, that people would buy what you've got. So of course I, yeah. I made it and, and never got a lot of, or, I mean, for me to get one or two orders a week was a lot with my schedule. Sure. I was never going to make them and catch up, which gets into, you know, me then talking to one of my early students who was coming in for lessons and, uh, wasn't able to pay for them for a period of time because he was kind of running into hard times. So I said, look, I, and he did have a mechanical background as being a builder and, building things. So I just said, look, I need help building these seats. So I said, if if you build some seats, I'll give you some lessons. And if we get That's enough great. seat orders, I can pay you a little bit. And that was John Good. 
So oh, wow. That, that was the beginning of our manufacturing relationship. John Jeez. would help me help with it. I'd finish my lesson at seven, eight o'clock at night. He'd bring out the folding tables and the glue and the scissors and everything and make make seats until midnight. So that was Man. that was it's, the be- that was the beginning. It's such an amazing story. Just it's almost and I've said it's about other drum back, you know, the, the histories of other companies, but it almost seems like it could be a movie. You know it, it, I mean? And and I also wonder if any of those original drum workshop you know, trap the the canister thrones are still around. If someone yeah, still got, I've got them, some, I have a couple in our archives. Uh, John wow. Hernandez uh, gave me one because you know all all the guys were using them back in the early day. Once we started, where we could make a few of them because that was like the hot. You had a seat that was solid, and you were still the jazz guys were still pulling hardware in them that would fit inside of it. Of course, yep. In the eighties, when the hardware got so big, nobody cared. They couldn't put it in their seat. It was going to yep. be going in a large trap case, but. But the whole idea of sitting on something that's really solid was just, uh, it made you play better mm-hmm. because it gave you more stability. Uh, and then it had the advantage of you, you know, sitting comfortably for six hours plus if you're, you know, playing a club gig. And um, it has just such a classic look. I think of Gene and Buddy and and um, just sitting. And I love how it ma- you can get the wrap to match yeah, your we can drums. Do that. Yeah. And it's just got a nice top to it. It's such a neat, um, neat function. But Breaking news, don't tell anybody this, so so all of you out there, but, you know, probably as we bring Slingerland back, we'll have that in the product line again as a as a matching seat oh, that great. can match up with the rest of everything. But that's just Which, between us. Yeah, so, and I, I, I well, down the road, I, I have to ask you about Slingerland, but we'll get, we'll get there later. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, so you and John Good, which, I mean, John Good is, is, is just, like, he is also synonymous with, with DW. I mean, you yeah. guys are... Um, have it's it's neat to know how that background started. I didn't know if it was like a business relationship. That's about as pure and cool just drum stuff as it gets is trading lessons for building thrones. I mean, he has been there since the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. He came, he came uh he he came very, very early on after we had the teaching studio. He just walked in one day, moved out here when he was seventeen on his own from Chicago after going wow. to school in Italy and just Said, you know, I want to take some drum lessons. So hmm. that was uh, we started, and then then he didn't want to keep working at the plastic factory because it was the fumes and stuff. So I just said, well, quit that. Let's make some seats and see how it goes here. So we were we were on a shoestring back in those days, and that was yeah, you know, that one of my students was uh, the owner of Campco, uh, oh. and back in you know it was. Ludwig Slingerland and Rogers, they were the, the iconic brands through the all, all of history up until, I guess, the 70s, right, when Pearl came in and then yep. the 80s when Tama came in and joined them a few years later. Sure. Um, and, uh, and and then to answer your question from earlier, I, I then later got a Slingerland kit. That was a kit I played on for many, many years also because uh, cool. uh, my, my teacher had played Slingerland at that point. Uh, so you're kind of influenced yeah. by your by your mentors, I guess. Um, Very much. And those are two kits I had that I kind of went the little wiggly slingerland kit. I kind of used back and forth through playing club days. Uh, mm. Then I got a Campco kit a little bit later on, which was just a total coincidence. And Campco was the the kind of the the Gretsch was a custom drum company. They were like small. I would guess Ludwig had sixty percent of the market back in those days. Uh, pretty close. Slingerland would have been next. Rogers would have been next. Campco. Gretsch was very small. Campco was even smaller than Gretsch. I think they yep. had the 
the Beach Boys. They had one or two major bands that were using Campco drums, but yeah, Creedence. a lot of the jazz, yeah, a lot of the jazz guys were using them because yep. of the sound of the drum set. It was a six ply cell with a six ply reinforcing hoop. Uh, mm. Gretsch was a six ply cell with no reinforcing hoop, which made it a much lower resonant cell. The, re- the reinforcing hoop, contrary to many people's thoughts, is not for strength, although it does make the drum stronger. It's because it raises the pitch of the drum a couple of octaves. Wow. So you would be tuning in another direction. The, I mean, think of it as if you were to have a six-ply s- s- guitar string, not that there is such a thing, but if you were to have a, a string and you, and, you didn't, and, you, and you held it at this distance, it would have one pitch. If you put thicker ends on it and grab it here, it's going to have a higher pitch. So the more wood you have on the ends of the shell, the, t- the higher the pitch goes up. But we learned that as time. John and I, you know, are as much as, you know, you would think maybe of people with their white lab coats on and they're, you know, we're walking into the laboratory today to invent something new. It was all, on many occasions, it was mistakes that we made yeah. that we went, Joe, this doesn't sound bad this way, though, even though it's not what we wanted. Sure. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, it is a science, though, with grains and directions, which well, you, you guys truly are famous for, of using wood that's you know a thousand years old and has been resurrected and and again i'm sure we'll get to that later down the road but um so you were teaching who who was the president who who owned camco at that so basically uh camco was initiated was originally by george way uh and and that was the george way drum company and he came up with the round lug Mm -hmm. um and i heard stories how he came up with the round lug but somehow he came up with the round lug and then uh and he was working at, I believe, Slingerland at the time. There's the George Way book that has his history um, yeah. or as, as a foreman there at one point. In any event, he sold to uh, a camp company, John Rashawn's camp company, mm-hmm. and then it became the camp company drums. But then after people started putting those two together, they dropped the period, C-A-M period C-O, and it became Campco drums. Uh, and then they ran for a while, then they sold to Custom Electronics, uh, custom never and custom got huge in electronics, and I think it was the seventies, right? The big, oh, you know, the big cushioned amplifiers. I think they were the first big major rock amplifiers. They were going to get into a drum division too at one point, but they bought it and decided not to. So they they mm. made very few shells. The gentleman out here, his name was Tom Beckman, had a musical instrument distribution company. He would be a reseller of musical instruments to all the dealers in the area, and then. He was a great businessman, uh, didn't have a, you know, a real passion for drumming necessarily, but he saw the opportunity to buy this Campco drum company from Custom Electronics at pennies on the dollar. It had just been sitting there kind of dormant for two years. And we brought it out here and resurrected it with the purpose of building it up and reselling it at some point. So he, uh, he had his distribution company at his little manufacturing facility in the back. They were mainly making pedals and making a few drum shells. Um, but the pedal was the main, the one product the camp go had that you could kind of say was a successful product in terms of numbers, sure. I guess. So yeah. you know, it was for, for the jazz market in those days, but that was the market in those days. So yeah. he, uh, through a friend of a friend, he wanted to have his son take drum lessons. So I've been teaching his son for about a year and he just came in one day out of the blue to pick him up and said, I have the opportunity to become president of Roland US, which he was for more than 20 years. And he said, I'm going to sell my distribution company and I'm going to sell Campco. I have already initiated an agreement with Hoshino Tama to buy it, mm-hmm. but they don't want any of the machinery and equipment. 
So, because they're going to make it all in Japan. So I can, uh, if you're interested, I'll go back to them and say, you know, I've got my my drum teachers, my son's drum teacher, you know, wants to buy the machinery and equipment, and you know, he'll make some things in his garage and supply some parts to customers. So I don't have yeah. people pissed off because they can't get parts anymore. So he came back in and said, yeah, they want to, they're fine with that. So I'll have Mm. you buy the, the dyes and the tools and the molds, everything it takes to make it. And I'm just going to sell them the name. Obviously it's a business decision. He got more for it in two parts than he would have if he just sold it because he was going to throw the stuff away. He didn't have have anything to do with it. So, yeah. So uh, I went to the union and uh, the leader of the band I was with at that time, we went down to the union and we borrowed money and took it to him and made the down payment. And then, ended up uh, owning the dies and molds to make the bass drum pedal, which was my main concern. Yeah. And it's, and selfishly too, I guess in a way, because I, as soon as he said that, I'm thinking, this is the pedal I use. What if I need a new spring? <laughs> or, or, or the <laughs> yeah, footboard you got to make it now. <laughs> what, what, well, I did. Who's, if, I, if I don't buy this, who's going to, where do I go? What's going to happen? You know, as so I called a bunch of friends and it's like, yeah, you should do it. You should do it. You should do it. So I, wow. not knowing anything about business, I had the opportunity then through a mutual friend, my teacher actually, Nick Ciroli, uh, to to meet with uh, Remo, who mm. was was like meeting with the god of manufacturing. I mean, he's got sure. a hundred thousand square foot facility. He makes drum heads that everybody in the world uses. You yeah. know, I get to meet with Remo. You know, uh, yeah. So he. He was kind enough to see me the next day. I just said, I've got to make a decision here to let this guy know that I want to do this. I don't know if I know what I'm doing or I don't know what I'm doing. He, he knew of me through mutual friends as a drum drummer in town. He knew the name. We had never met. So, uh, so as a student of Nick's, basically. Mm. And so I met with him and he encouraged me that I, he thinks I'd have a chance at doing it. So, and he had helped wow. me through the years in mentoring me with you know, some business decisions as we were growing also. But we were basically a hardware company. If you think of it, we started with uh, with just the bass drum pedal. And again, what encouraged me was even though I didn't have a name, I mean, I had Drum Workshop, which nobody in the world, if they weren't in Santa Monica or taking lessons from me, you know, knew about. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I just went back to this guy in Chicago, bought the seat and sent me 75 bucks and didn't know who I was. So <laughs> yeah. why not do it with pedals too? Yeah, I mean, exactly. What, what do you if, have I, to lose? if I make a pedal that's really good, he's going to really flip out and go, yeah, I'll take two of those, you know, and I'll tell my friends wow. about it. So, so that was the idea was just getting into the, to what was the best feeling pedal in those days. And then getting the patent for the chain and sprocket, which I purchased from Frank's drum shop in New York. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and then tricking the pedal, if you will, into designing it my my design chops were simply make it exactly like the campco leather nylon strop or leather pedal all the exact same but but make it so that it won't break so the chain and sprocket solved the problem of the of the strap breaking in the cam it had a, a secondary effect which was like a cool dude you know yeah chain and sprocket you got a pedal with a chain and sprocket you know yeah I got which was revolutionary strap. yeah right and so yeah. it's it, it, the perception was it's going to last longer as it did. It's, I want to throw in that it's just interesting to you're, you're filling in a lot of holes because everyone kind of knows about eh, I think everyone knows about Camco and how you, you know, Tama got the, the name, but you got the parts. But you're filling in a lot of like real like like you're almost like like before it was like an outline and you're filling in the color of actually everything that that, that happened. And um, 
I there there's an episode about uh, I'll send it to you, Don, because you might get a kick out of it because you're obviously the guy. But someone uh, Vincent Ward did an episode on the history of the 5000 pedal and did oh. a ton of research. Nice. So I'll send it to you to get the, you know, the, the your blessing. But um, and 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 just to hear the rest of it being filled in is just fascinating. And that that chain drive was really, like we just said, revolutionary and more reliable. And now we take it for granted with all these different, you know, types of chains and drives and, and cams and things. But it's it's a it was, I'm sure, a big deal. That was that was the I, I knew from the moment we bought it, I wanted to, you know, in the back of my mind, it was like, I got to come out with a chain drive version of this pedal. And that's when I, yeah. you know, started negotiating and talking with Frank back at, his, at the drum shop in New York. And, and the original, then the, the key though, was the original chain and sprocket, the sprocket was completely round because it was a sprocket. You bought at a hardware store for other purposes. So, mm-hmm. but the, the nylon strap pedal on the Campco was not, concentric it was eccentric so basically it was not a round cam so i had to design then a sprocket that we specifically made to be the exact same shape as the cam that was on the leather pedal so then again trying to keep the because the, the feel of the completely round sprocket was a little bit different than the original campco pedal with the strap on it and yeah. it wasn't the difference between the strap and the chain it was a difference between an eccentric and a concentric sprocket I didn't know what those words meant until I got into this and looked <laughs> yeah. it up at some point when I'm I was just manufacturing. Nodding, like, but, yes. <laughs> but the round and the off round, uh, ob- oblong round sprocket, sure. I guess is what you would say. That's the eccentric one. Um, and on the eccentric sprocket, as the beater ball comes back, the footboard actually comes back a little bit faster than the relation to the beater ball. Not to confuse mm. everybody, but if you ever look at one and try it, you could kind of see that because the, the cam pushes the sprocket chain outwards as the sprocket is turning up not just pulling it up at one point but so so i tried to trick everybody if, if you will in a friendly way to making a pedal that felt just like the old nylon strap but was a chain and sprocket and then we started improving all the other areas um and i was able to get several patents which was really cool having the ball bearing and the rocker eventually ball bearings in the hinge um we got the patent on the double pedal and then if you had a double pedal What's the next thing that was the big problem? You had three legs on your hi-hat. So we got a patent on a two-legged hi-hat. Um, putting your remote hi-hat off to the right on a cable, was that was you know a two-year operation. And then... Yeah, I had one of those. Those re- remote hi-hats. I bought it and I was very young and I didn't need... I, I absolutely did not need a remote hi-hat. But uh, I was like... I got you know had a job in, in high school and just bought it because I had extra money. And it was just so cool. But <laughs> that, that was... There's another whole show. I mean, there's... There's a lot of behind the scenes, dirt, almost gossipy stories that, uh, that go along with a lot of these highlights yeah. that I'm giving you that are colorful, sure. I guess, as much as it is. But in order, it took me over a year or more to come out with a cable that felt good because there were other companies started doing it with motorcycle cables and they would bend and they just wouldn't feel good. So yep. the cable you had on your sprocket, just to let you know, the, the housing of it came from a company in Chicago, mm. uh, which is the rubber part. The actual white part that's on the inside was made by a prosthetics company in Japan because it wow. was a lower coefficient than even uh, Delron in those days or Teflon. And then the wire was also from a separate company. So I had to buy these three components, send it to a company that made cables, and they put it together for us. So, hmm. But, but, wow. you just, but that, that's where I think the not being a, a, an engineer, but... Having drummer friends, you know, growing up with Jim Keltner and it's like 
hey, I got an idea. Try this out. Try this yeah. one. Try this one. Try this one. Well, I would try it. Like well, it's same with the double pedal. Well, the left pedal is it works. So everybody's works. But I'm like, yeah. you know, if I put my right foot on it, I know it's not my right bass drum pedal. So how do I how do I make the right and the left feel sure at least ninety five percent you know the same and uh, in our early yeah. double pedals were probably seventy percent the same but but whose left foot was technically as good as their right foot they weren't using it to play as fast as their right foot they were playing half no. as fast because they were playing double patterns one with each foot so sure but so that so the double pedal really in uh, eighty four eighty five kind of put us into business from the standpoint of our accountant looking at numbers because gotcha. we were struggling, struggling, losing, borrowing, you know, up pretty much up to that point. Uh, mm. and, and all with good problems to have because our sales would continually grow every year. This episode is brought to you by Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street, Nashville, Tennessee. Call 615-383-8343 or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. You, you have to have that problem. There's growing pains of, of oh, we're not doing... You, you have to hit a point of like, um, oh, taxes and things like this and, and all that. And and I keep just going back to what you said before. I, I get a lot of parallels thinking of like Gene Krupa and like Slingerland and Zildjian where he would be the drummer on the street developing these things and making things better and better. And it's exactly what you're saying where you would have... You're a drummer out there. You would have drummer friends. Try this out. Does how does this feel? Okay, tweak this a little bit. It's just it's just classic, you know the the classic story of getting people's feet on the pedals. How's it feel? Okay, could it be better? Tweak it. Okay, now it's better. It's just awesome. Yeah, I, we went to a chain manufacturer once, and he was like, "Use our chain." I don't remember the numbers, but it was some astronomical. It'll it'll hold a two thousand pound load basis or something like that. And he gave me all of his brochures. It's like. I said, okay, let me get back with you. I sent it out to like four drummers, three of them broke it. So I just said, you know, uh, you know, there, and what he wasn't, what he wasn't considering is that it was going back and forth like this in addition to just being pulled that way. But the way to test stuff is we have a testing machine at DW, which we put things on to give it the, you know, the, the 50 mile checkup, but sure. then we get it out to some drummers to play it in the field for, for four or five months. And then you're going to know for sure what, you know, what you've got. So yeah. So for me, kind of coming into the, the, there was an interesting part of the world in those days too, because Ludwig Slinger and Rogers had fallen and been sold to larger corporations. Um, so they kind of lost, I don't know what you would call it, the entrepreneurial spirit, if you would. They became mm -hmm. another another profit centers of corporations with people running them just to look at, at numbers, you know, as their primary yeah. goal. Um, so we, there wasn't really a custom American company who would make custom things for drummers. And yeah. at that point, Tam and Pearl and Yamaha, Tam and Pearl for sure at that point, Yamaha a little bit later, uh, had taken over pretty much the drum market for the beginning entry and, you know, and, and, uh, and even the upper level, you know, drum sets of those days. So, sure. so we kind of, we kind of came in knowing that drummers 
whenever you make something to be a certain uh, adjustability, a drummer is going to want it in between. So that's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. So, so I just said, you know, when we did our, our, our simple tilter, they all had teeth on them. So I just said, we got to make one. And I was as much as I'm, you know, bagging on drummers, I was the worst. I would, you know, if it's here and here, I want, God, can I get it just in the middle of that tooth? It's where I would, exactly. I didn't need it there, but it just felt better if it was there, you know? <laughs> it's that feeling. We all know that feeling with older stands of like, like you said, it's, it's the teeth and it's click, 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 click. But yeah, you want it right here. These are all things you take for granted now with, yeah. with these, this modern hardware. But I remember having old Ludwig stands where it was like, or your stand is slowly drooping going down, the whole right, time. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, so we tried yeah. to make everything, you know, work, you know, and that was, uh, you remind me of an early Tommy Lee story where he took our chain drive, took the 5,000 pedal out, and uh, and Clyde, his drum tech, called me like six, seven months later, and he said, I just wanted to let you know, Tommy wanted to let you know, we, we just thought about it, we didn't think about it until we got back, we used that pedal on the whole tour, and I thought, I didn't even think about it. I said, well, why the hell would you not use the pedal? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, no, no, it's because, you know, we had previously had to go through four or five pedals in one tour. So wow. that was, that was kind of a, That's I cool. knew I was doing a good job at that point. Yeah. Right. If it, didn't yeah. even, it didn't even register to him. Cause it was just no. like every night it works, every night it feels, it feels good. So that's yeah. so such a, such a thing. Like we said before you take it for granted where I've heard a lot of stories in the early days of hardware just breaking. And now we're so kind of uh, just, I don't want to say jaded. What's the right word. You just don't even think about it. Your hardware is just there. I've used five. I have a 5,000 pedal from, I believe 92, uh, which I got secondhand. I didn't buy it as a two year old uh, being born in 90, but um, it, it, works perfectly i mean i don't think it's been repaired very much i don't think anything it's, yeah, it's that's just where you awesome go through, you know terry bozio you know guys it's it's little things that add a lot to the cost which is why our stuff is more expensive plus being made yep. in america but you can you can use all different gauges of tubing that look really cool but if you're using a thin gauge tubing you're going to have problems you know within a few months of how it how it's going to yeah. hold especially if you put a clamp on it so we we have Another kind of a little secret thing I don't think I've talked about much before, but it, it and being an American company where we make everything here and we ship it from here, we in the beginning I, I always looked at how much more we could put into the actual cost of the product to get better mm. ball bearings. In in the world of ball bearings, you get precision ball bearings or non precision ball bearings. There's no kind of a kind of a halfway good ball bearing. It's either nineteen cents or it's a dollar fifty. You know, wow. and we could go with the expensive ones because we didn't have the cost of making it in a location offshore, shipping it here, and then having a distribution center here to re, you know, to resell it. We just we we made it, and as soon as we made it, we turned around and shipped it to the guy. So yeah. I'd rather put the extra thirty percent cost that we save by not having a distribution center into the quality of the product, and then absolutely that that then you that that quality is what's going to allow the guy to come back and pass on the next thing we make but wasn't until the wasn't until the late 80s that we got into drums and that's when john kind of we said john why don't you like you know really spearhead going after woods and looking for drums and i'll keep working on the hardware not that we didn't work together on everything all the time but yeah. just kind of those were kind of two departments that we kind of segregated ourselves into yeah which which is really cool so and i'm thinking all right just to kind of check in here so we know the background of being the teacher and then camco and all that but so you said that Really, Drum Workshop as the brand, as we kind of know it, really just as being a brand, was about 81 or 82. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah. When, when somebody, it, I, I, I knew we hadn't quite arrived yet, 
when I was at the Frankfurt Fair in 1980, and the drum set was facing outwards, and I had the drum head on facing me. Somebody walked up and said, oh, MP drums. I said, no, you got to walk around to the other side. <laughs> so, okay, that's a so <laughs> We didn't quite wake up I knew, I knew I had a little bit further to go, but but we were close. Yeah. So I'd say by the mid-80s, we people kind of knew us as the, and it's called the 5,000 pedal because, there's my question for you, my trivia question, why do you think? Uh, I was, if I have to go back to that other episode, I mean, doesn't that, wasn't that the product number from the, that, that Camco called it? You absolutely uh, win the present. Yeah. You were listening. Yeah. You got it right. And then yeah. it was the Martin Fleetfoot or whatever before, before that, if I'm well, not Martin mistaken. Fleetfoot, yeah. That was, a, that was a pedal, uh, from France, I believe. Yeah. Which was, yeah. which was very, very much an innovative pedal that was predecessor to that. And then the Gretsch floating action pedal was, yeah. was the Campco pedal made by Campco yeah. just with the Gretsch footboard on it. I made some for Campco in the early days too. I mean, for Gretsch. Okay. Man, I'm glad I got that right. Um, <laughs> no, no, you got it right. So uh, a, a thing that I'm thinking too, which I never really thought about that, that you kind of mentioned before was, um, so in the eighties, the big American brands were sort of on the decline. They were still great brands, but they're going away a little bit. They don't go away, but they're getting bought up. The Japanese brands are coming in, which are phenomenal. They're really great. They yeah. make good drums, but it really ate into that market share. But that's when you came in. I mean, it's just it's interesting that that you were coming in as as you were the new American brand. Yeah, really. if I had if 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 I had any business sense or had gone to business school, I would have never done it because that would have been the stupidest <laughs> thing anybody could do. That yeah, why you know? And I was actually trying to get a three thousand dollar loan from our local Santa Monica bank, and my story kind of was you know. I, the three American companies have all really gone down. It's being dominated by foreign competitors. And this is a great time for me to, to me to come in. And I knew it was because I knew I would be able to offer something to drummers that they weren't, they didn't want to wait two months to get, or they wouldn't yeah. have anybody here who they would be able to talk to. But, sure. but to a business guy, it was like, so you're telling me you want to start an American drum company <laughs> after you tell me the three ones that have been big are no longer in existence and you're going to yeah. be successful. And let's, <laughs> So I said, yeah, the banker's like, I don't think so. He doesn't have, he's not a drummer. No, I got the loan and I paid him back. They did, they did, they, they thought I was a nice guy at the end of the day. He said, Oh, it was kind of like, okay, I, you got it. Yeah. But, but that was, that is true. That's kind of where the, that's, that's kind of where the market was. And I just used, I used our, you know, connection, if you will, uh, in terms of knowing drummers. In fact, it reminds me of one of the owners of one of the major drum companies came up to me at an AM show in the mid 80s. And I thought this was a compliment. And he just said, because we're now starting to gain, you know, gain name recognition. People are thinking of DW is like the best. And we were, yeah. we, we hadn't taken a drum set to the NAM show yet, but we had gotten them in the hands of a couple of dealers. And so he, you know, they're, they're quite outgoing, you know, mm -hmm. Japanese businessmen, which I like too. But sure. he just came up and said, who does your marketing? And I just thought back, hmm, because he's thinking, our brand is getting really good. Somebody is really doing a good job of marketing this product. And I'm thinking, well, I do the ads and I and I talk with David Levine and we put them together and we decide. He thought I was lying to him. So he said, oh, I know. That's okay. You don't have to tell me. I said, no, I'm telling you, we don't have a marketing department. <laughs> we, we just make yeah. stuff. <laughs> I didn't want to Man. give away the secret. Just make it really good and tell people about it. And isn't, yeah. I don't need people to come up with like the nifty slogan, you know. So, no, it's a great product and word clearly spreads with the great product, which is super interesting that I, and I also think you, you took your time, you perfected the hardware and where we left off with the story was 
you're now getting into drums in the late 80s, which makes sense that you didn't just rush and do everything all at once, which mm-hmm. I think is smart. Well, uh, there again, uh, from a business perspective, smart. From a dollars and cents perspective, no other choice. We didn't have money to get into yeah. drums. So that was, we, <laughs> we, if you're making a pedal and selling it, you know, and it's costing you and you're in the hundreds of dollar range for 150, 200, 250, um, you make a certain amount and you hopefully get more orders and you make a little more the next, a little more the next. If, yeah. if you make a drum set, you're taking the money away from making a whole bunch of pedals to make that one drum set, which, you know, you're tying that money up. So you, you hope that you sell the drum set in time. So we, we weren't really making drums for consumers, for customers to go buy, customers meaning dealers, to order from us until 1990. And that yeah. was when we decided to uh, to really do a – literally the decision was, do I buy the new Ford van because mine was like junked? Or yeah. do we put $30,000 into a catalog, which was an astronomical amount of money in my mind. But yeah, yeah if we're going to borrow thirty, let's put it into a new catalog. We had a lot of studio drummers playing the drums. And um, actually, today I had lunch just a few minutes ago with Danny Seraphine, and he was one of our first, I would say, crossover drummers before before Motley Crue. As far as a drummer with Chicago, of course, was you know on the charts, yeah, uh, doing really well at that time. And he had left Yamaha, so he was one of the first drummers that left a major drum company and then went to DW. That kind of like shook everybody up. So this, you know, this this must be a real drum company if this yeah. guy's switching. <laughs> we had great studio drummers, Larry London. We had. A lot of guys using the DW kit as their B kit in the studio, a lot of friends, even though they were endorsed by other companies. But we didn't have backline. We didn't have artist support. We certainly weren't doing what most all the, you know, the foreign competitors were paying their artists to play their drums. And that wasn't even a, a thought, nor is it now. So yeah. so that's that's so we, we just were kind of filling gaps. And a couple of stores would bring them in because they had seen guys that had played on them or done records. And they say, hey, could you make me a drum set? So John was on the road most of the 80s because he was making may, way more money than I could ever pay him uh, as a drum tech. And that's that's how we tested out a lot of our gear. I mean, he had all the mm. Michael Jackson tours with Jonathan Moffat, Madonna's tours, yep. Earth, Wind & Fire, um, Zappa with Chad Wackerman. So what a great yeah. way to make something, send it to him. He puts it out on the stage in front of 100,000 people and we all pray that it works. Uh, yeah, you know, so <laughs> I that, think it worked out <laughs> yeah, that, that way. That way you get it. So so it was it was in 1990 when uh, we just decided to go to the NAMM show and say to the world, we're a drum company, you know, and we we had one, you know, modern drummer had their industry awards back in those years and they had it broken between accessory companies and drum companies. And we had one best accessory company probably four or five years in a row, I believe. Mm. Um, and then. Unbeknownst to me, in the late 80s, we won Best Drum Company. So I'm just like, people wow. think of us as a drum company. They, they used to think of us as an accessory <laughs> company. Now they think of us as a drum company. And yeah, I believe you can check this out with Modern Drummer. But as I recall, they, they stopped doing that award because the other companies got so pissed off that we kept winning it that they thought that <laughs> I was paying Ron Spignardi under the table or something in order to, oh, man. In order to come out number one. I mean, it's quality. Quality is key. And you... To this day, you obviously make great quality instruments. Um, and and I, I want to ask, though, about had you always used and the, maybe, you know, the quick story about the the round, the turret lug, the George Way round lug, which is iconic for DW, obviously goes back to George Way drums and Camco. But um, how did you decide to use that style lug? Well, there 
there again, we I bought the tooling dies and molds. Well, so duh. That, oh yeah, of that, course. That, that's what I was. That's what I was looking at. So that there was, it is. And 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 it took me several years with the harder ones I got, but we got a, a trademark on that lug. Um, yeah. Going back to our having owning the history of it back to paperwork and documentation, I get going back to George Way, which is different than a design patent. By the way, trademarks have a lifetime expectancy, so. Mm. Any any round surface that's over like a quarter is, would be infringed on the look of our lug. So so it was it was different than everybody else's lug. A bit opinionated. Um, mm-hmm. First time I met Buddy Rich uh, was at Nick Ceroli's house, and I was introduced to him by hey, Nick. Here's Don. He's you know making those Campco drums, and Buddy said, "Oh, you're you're the guy making the drums with the clocks on them." I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is a compliment or not a compliment or yeah. I mean that's we, buddy. We ended up becoming you're the guy making the drums with the clocks on them. I said, "Yeah, that's 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 the one, all right. I don't know if yeah. that means you like it or you don't like it." He said, "No, he actually played them for a period of time." Yeah, there's yeah. video of it on online and it's it's really cool. I mean, just to have buddy playing your drums in in is got to be an accomplishment yeah. for the history, you know, yeah, history. There's there's a <laughs> There's a story behind why he was playing them. <laughs> really? Uh, well, he loved them. He liked the sound of the drums, but you know, he would always go for companies that would be paying him. He was one of the first ones that would. Yeah. Every three years, he would go between Ludwig Slingerland and Rogers, and you know, Slingerland went out a good portion of the time. But uh, he, at that point in in the history of his life and of the drumming industry with Tamar Pearl and Yamaha, the, the American companies could not afford to pay him. They were owned by other companies who were not going to pay it an old jazz drummer uh and nor nor would the japanese companies pay him so it's like he was like well then i'm not going to get paid i'll go out with some drums that let me hear what they sound like don and i'll take them out and play them so it was awesome it was it was partly he liked the drums but it was partly up yours to to companies who wouldn't pay him (laughs) who aren't paying him at the same time so so and then he had his heart attack unfortunately you know and then we never connected with him again after that yeah Uh, and became wow. sick with cancer after that. So, anyways, that's I got. I had a great experiences, probably on half dozen or more occasions, to spend a whole day with him in a you know with just a couple of friends, with Nick or with Frank DeVito. They would always invite me every time he'd come to town, sometimes yeah. twice a year, and that would be some, yeah. some great stories there. But no, you're 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 right. Yeah. So, um, when we're getting into the '90s, and I mean, I was a kid, but '90s into the 2000s, I mean, DW. They, you guys still are, but I just again, you, you turn on the TV like 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 watching like Jay Leno or Conan or David Letterman. To me, growing up, I feel like seventy percent of the drummers I would see were playing DW. I mean, it was it is massive, but especially at that point, because it was still pretty young in your guys in your the history of the company. But it, you guys exploded. I mean, no, it the nineties the nineties were were you know kind of the beginning of when we. People were really dealers were having us, you know, be part of their drum product line as opposed to just an individual drum we'll bring in from time to time. They looked at their, they looked at drums they wanted to have. Uh, and, and another advantage we had is we made far fewer drums than any of our competitors because all of our drums were the three thousand dollars, two thousand in those days, you know, up, which is the top thirty percent of the market. So we're fortunate to have a lot of that part of the market, but it's still a very small volume compared to the rest of the market, which is why eventually sure. we came out with PDP because yeah, which is great. John and I wanted to get, we, we were tired at the NAMM show of all these people who were saving up to buy our drum sets or just didn't have quite enough money to. So 
we wanted to say, hey, well, well, we've got an option for you. We've got the best of of what was going on in the 70s and 80s with a great, you know, American shell, and it's going to be PDP. We'll give it a different a different spin, uh, yeah. so that we, they'd have a, a B choice. And they turned out to be a lot of our A guys are are recording oh, yeah. on them too. But no, the 90s yeah. was a was a kind of our turnaround. And then you know, it's it's still amazing to me to see you know as, as much as it sounds strange when I go in, uh, it doesn't seem like any bigger company than it used to be because I'm still hanging out with the R and D team. We still come up with new yeah. things hang out with John, you know, there's obviously a lot more employees, but, but we, we, for DW, we hit kind of a number many years ago, many years ago that we thought was the maximum we could make per month without, you know, losing any quality control. Uh, and so we've, sometimes it takes longer to get them than it does other times, but we make the same amount every, every month or approximately. And that's like, that's kind of our, that's kind of where the water seeks its level. That's about what the world will take at our price point. And that's about <laughs> sure. what we can make to be sure we don't lose any quality. Well, and and what I said before about seeing them everywhere, it almost makes me think too, like I need to kind of rewind and say, I was seeing like the, the players who were using them were the most mainstream, like huge drummers that you could imagine, which makes it almost... Uh, give the perception that they're literally everywhere, but it's also because you're seeing them on the late night shows. You're seeing them everywhere. Like um, I was watching that, the new Pam and Tommy uh, show that's on Hulu and Tommy's in his garage playing DW. I was watching it last night and it's like, they're just, they're, they're, they're very, very popular. When the best players in the world are playing them, it, it just makes young drummers like at that time, like me watch and go, God, I gotta have that. You see that DW on the bass drum and you go, Oh, I have to have one. <laughs> it's a compliment to us for sure. Every every yeah. time that come every time that comes around, I and mean, the the drum set we make for a store is the same way we make it for Neil Peart. You know, yeah. there's, we don't you don't every every one of them is custom, and we make each one with the same same attention to detail as we as we possibly can, and and the same thing you know with with the hardware, which is you know the bass drum pedal is your connection to what you're playing. It's kind of like a pair yeah. of drumsticks. So yeah. that that's one of the most important ingredients that I personally keep my, you know, my hands in all the time, trying to affect that and come out with something new. Our machine drive is kind of the, the ultimate because that way we have control over every single part that goes into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I want to just tell you this cause, cause I feel like we could talk all day and there's more to, more to cover in the history. But when I was younger, I always want, like I said, I wanted a DW set so bad, but they are, I mean, it's not really something that a 12 year old can just go out and, and buy. Um, so what I would do is I would buy pieces and I would buy a floor tom and then I bought a sunburst um, tom off eBay that had gold hardware and the floor tom was gold sparkle with the normal silver hardware and I had a Ludwig bass drum that was from a rocker set and because I wanted to kind of cheat the system because I couldn't afford a DW set at the time at all. Um, I took them to Columbus Pro Percussion and got them all rewrapped, including the Ludwig bass drum that was not DW, obviously. I got them all rewrapped in gold sparkle. And uh, it was my like fake DW set that was not a full thing. Perfect. <laughs> it worked for me at the time, though, even though one had gold hardware, one had silver chrome, the Ludwig, the bass drum was Ludwig, but it 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 made me realize that like man, that floor Tom that I had and that Tom that was actually DW were truly from coming from, you know, like at that point, like I said, I had a Ludwig rocker kit. 
uh, as a 12 year old, these are some of the best drums made in the world, the DW stuff. So it really opened my eyes to, oh, that's what it can sound like. <laughs> that's what yeah, a real drum. Well, there, there was, I mean, part of our growth in the 90s was having the Tommy Lee age kids pretty much yep. who grew up with other companies' drums hearing and not, they didn't grow up with the American drums of the 50s or 60s. They grew up with another sound through the 70s and 80s. When they heard us come in, it was like the first time they've heard drums that sounded like that. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, for Tommy, it was kind of an epiphany. It's like when he played on yeah. the first DW kit, it's like, I've never heard toms that have that resonance, that have that low bottom fundamental like that. Tommy was a big impetus for me going back to those times in your manufacturing history. When when he said that, I was like, you're, you know, I think he was 20 at the time or 21, maybe I said, yeah. So, so all the 21 year, how do I get to them and have them hear what these drums sound like? So then we, then we just said, you know, well, if we go to the NAM show and we make it available to the dealers and they have customers that come in, they're going to be, I knew we made good sounding drums, but I thought, well, everybody knows they're good. It's just uh, how, 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 how good do they know they are and how much money, you know, is it possible for somebody to spend in order to have a, a quality sounding drum set and, or yeah. do it the way you did, just make it happen any way you possibly can. But, in the, in yeah. those days, our, our 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 biggest endorsers were microphones because the way we got most of mm. our artists in the uh, in the nineties was engineers who would use a DW kit in their studio, and we would get calls regularly from major artists saying, "Hey, I just used your kit on this record on this one. See, I didn't know you guys were making drums. You know, tell tell me what's going on, kind of a thing." Yeah. So yeah. that was that was we didn't have A and R people going out and trying to get people to play our drums. You know, we never yeah. have. We have great A and R guys now that uh, Stephen Garrison, who basically service artists. I'm going to go here. I need a drum set. I'm going to go here. I need some parts. I sure. But but we don't do the typical, you know, hang out. Hey, let me let me let me send you a drum set and see what you think. It's just like, yeah, um, yeah. And we've never needed to do that. No, it's what you said before about, uh, you know, you're just doing it and, and people like the quality and it's it's um, it, it speaks for itself. Um, so I want to be courteous of your time here because we could talk all day. So do you want to kind of like uh, so in the 90s and 2000s, things are happening. You guys got into the the exotic woods. I mean, you got into some really cool stuff. Um, like I said, I'll talk to you all day. But is there is as we go through that period of time forward what are some key moments that really stuck out to you like in, including that exotic stuff which i think you're really known for uh yeah that was you know that was driven a lot by john who uh you know as as we as we made the leap into making our own drum shells obviously it became obvious to us that we could put any type of veneer we'd want as an outside finish on the drum set so he uh, in going to the uh frankfurt show every year which is the big industry trade show um would meet with wood suppliers from around the world who would come and say, hey, we'd like to show you what we've got. He would always stay over there a month or so after the show and visit their warehouses and became very good friends with some of them. So they would call us and say, hey, we've got a tree here that we think is going to look like this when we flitch it, when we peel mm. it off. Or would you be interested yeah. in looking at something like that? You know, and, uh, and then he got to figuring out the size of the tree, the hardness of the wood, uh, maybe we could do 80 kits with it. Maybe we could do more. Maybe it's something that uh, we could do on an ongoing basis if you have, you know, a lot of supply of this type of wood. And then it became just trial and error. It was like 
they were originally veneers. And then if it's like we've got a whole bunch of, uh, of, of ash or a certain type of wood in there, um, what if we actually started making some of the core of the shells with it and see what they sounded like? So yeah. it's, you do it. You don't, we don't figure out first what it should sound like and then make it. We make it and then see what the heck we got. Yeah. Some, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that, but we're constantly experimenting with that. Yeah. So that's, there, that's a p- big part of our, of what we can do. There is a, um, and I, you obviously are going to know the name right away. The, the, the documentary that you guys, uh, put out, I believe it wasn't it masters of resonance. Yeah. Scott it, was involved in that. I might not re- that was several years ago. Yeah. My wife was working just kind of as a fun side thing on, uh, on a, you know, as a judge in a local film festival and that got submitted and I think it actually won some stuff in it, but um, I got to watch it early with her because it was like a submission and she's like, do you want to watch this one? It has to do with drums. And I realized what it was. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. But um, that's out there. Uh, I will link to it if I can find it and people can watch that, but extremely well done. Just the description of like how these exotic drums come to yeah, life. That's a great one. And, it's on YouTube now. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um and it also I got to mention because I think people around my age have to remember this, the 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 drum kit builder that used to be on your website where you could go and design your drum set and choose it. I mean, I would do that like it was a video game. Like playing it after school and just building a drum set and your your setup. It was so cool. I think many drummers remember that as being just something that made you kind of sort of feel like you could have a DW kit as like, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's on the drawing boards again, too. A much more improved one. Oh, good. Good. I, I do want to, uh, you know, as we're coming up to the, the time limit that we have, um, I got to ask you, everyone's curious about it. I think it was, it was huge news when it happened. Um, something to do what, with Superman. Does it have an, something to do with Superman. <laughs> what is going on with Slingerland? Cause I mean, I'm so happy you bought the company and, there's, there's a, you know, it's in the works of bringing it back. What can we look forward to with Slingerland? Well, it's, it's, it's been, it's obviously exciting to me, and it's, uh, I've had the same, you know, concerns as everybody has, you know, in terms of the timing of when we're going to get it out because so many things have been happening in the world. It's so crazy, and we've had a, we have a couple of huge initiatives on the DW plate that's taking a lot of people's resources. So we're, we're meeting on it constantly. We're looking at. Uh, kind of changing our launching campaigns because we're so late on it now. But in general, we're, we're hoping by the end of this year, latest first quarter next year, we'll, we've nailed the Radio King snare drum. So cool. we'll have some vintage, vintage drums that will be exactly as the original drums were made. And then we'll come out with the drum sets uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and Great. that'll be like the 50s version. Um which we're we're getting all, we have to modify some of our shell heaters in order to put the reinforcing hoop in, which sure. is you go down the road and you set these dates and it's like okay let's make some because it should work we think and then we figure out well wait a minute no on a couple of our heaters which were the older ones it works on DW drums but it doesn't open up enough ones so that's yeah. you then got four months waiting to order the heater and getting them to make it and bringing it in and doing the electrical and so yeah. then as soon as that happens then you're back to people not coming in because you got to be there physically to do it. So, yeah. so it's, it's put it back, but we're going to, we're going to, I I'm in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of uh, kind of if marketing is the right word, presenting it in a historical way that would tie in with a lot of those vintage artists and records that were made in that period. And surprising to me, although I should have remembered a huge amount of our artists that came to DW came from Slingerland. 
because uh, interesting. So yeah, just somewhat, somewhat coincidental. Somewhat, one of my best friends uh, in LA at that time was the top Slingerland salesman. So he, as he, as as we were building up things, people became more aware of what we were doing, uh, mm. and uh, and and Slingerland kind of Ludwig, their quality was all good, but. Kind of, if you look back, what was happening in the later '70s and early '80s, Slingerland's quality kind of maintained itself because they were a smaller company in terms yeah. of volume. Ludwig got really big, and uh, and Rogers, you know, really had kind of fallen at that point. So Slingerland kind of was the the, the custom vibey company that guys, studio guys, people would use. Uh, yeah, Gresh was a little different sound than Slingerland. That worked in some cir- circumstances too. Uh, sure. So kind of want to bring back the Slingerland vibe of like, this is the, this is the exact shell construction that was used on those records that were made in the fifties and sixties. This hmm. is the exact shell construction that was made on those records and, and, and identify the record in the sound. And then as much as I can get back into either the original drummers who played on those tracks or at least, you know, say this, these are the size drums that was used on this and they're iconic drum tracks. You know, I mean, think, think of all the, all the artists that we know of, um, yeah. who I mentioned earlier in the interview I had lunch with today, Danny Seraphine. All those Chicago tracks were done on a Dynasonic snare drum, which is exactly yeah. like our our snare drum, which is the way the original Dynasonic was made. Um, we call it the Donosonic in the company, but it's got a <laughs> it's got another name for the outside world. But yeah, uh, and 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 he played on a Slingerland kit, so he's you know he's going to be you know, a lot of a lot of our DW artists will be you know will be talking about the Slingerland kit that they use. So if wow. somebody wants to get a second kit and have it in their arsenal, it's like the kind of like the ultimate vintage vibe, I think. Uh, totally. So, so I'm excited about it. It's, it's, it's a year behind schedule, but so is the whole world. Every, everything <laughs> is. I mean, that's good to know though. I yeah. didn't, I mean, I think everyone in the world was kind of like what's happening with this, but it's good to hear it directly from the man himself that it is coming. I mean, everything got screwed up. Um, so yeah, that's just awesome. Great news. And I've been spending a good part of my time recently on drum channel too. Yes. And I wish we had more time. So we, we do have to end soon because Don's a busy man, but um, everyone needs to check out drum channel. Uh, there's the videos, there's the podcast. You guys have lessons. I mean, there's, there's everything. Basically I want, I want it to be a kind of a vault having known so many great drummers and being able to have them as friends whether they're DW artists or not DW artists, you know, this, we, we all hang out yeah. uh, and to have a place where they could give back and document, you know, not a whole historically part of their life's experience, but the greatest teachers, you know, of all time, Murray Spivak method, Murray, who taught, you know, uh, some of the greatest drummers that we know today, um, all the Wackermans, uh, Garibaldi. I mean, uh, just the, the list goes on and on. Uh, Freddie Gruber's method, the people that he impacted with his life. So, you know, you need growing up and on online or in person, you know, if you can find two or three great drum teachers in your life that can really, you know, mentor you at least, you know, visually as we can do it. And on drum channel, yeah. we're going to make it even more interactive so you can have more of a contact with these drummers. But we're, we're, our, 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 our academy is, is focusing around courses that we have with Thomas Lang. Terry Bozio, Chad Wackerman, and 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 Murray Spivak's method, which is what Chad's going to be doing. Uh, and if you as you as you study those courses, you have to practice. 
you know, we're not giving you the, you know, 10 quick ways yeah. to improve your weekend. <laughs> you know, there's, sure. there's one quick way to improve your weekend, practice using your weekend, you know, yeah. like these guys all show you, you know, how to do that. So, and they all fill a, a fill a gap. Uh, Greg Bissonette's course is all about vocabulary. So obviously you have to learn how to play the drums before you start taking that course. Yeah. Chad Wackerman's course, the Maurice Spivak method is all on a pad. It'll give you the technique. Thomas Lang's course will take your technique to the next level. Obviously, yeah. all yeah. I have to say is Thomas Lang. You know? yeah. And then Terry yes. Bozio will make you a musician. So take all of the ability that you've gained, all of the rhythms and beats that you've learned, and what's the difference that really gets you the gig? Why do you, you know, why 50 people audition, one person gets the gig, yeah. you know? And then you don't want to find out after you didn't get the gig what he did that you wished you'd have done. So yeah. that's kind of do and then there's a hundred artists on there that just you can either figure out a topic and have four or five drummers discuss that topic, or you can pick your favorite drummer in what we call master classes and have him talk to you for an hour about what he's doing. Uh, yeah. So there's there's but for me it's just it's kind of like building the seats at the beginning. I didn't go into it as a yeah. business because I'm not looking to start another business, but I wanted to have a place where we could document all of this information. So. Not that you shouldn't go to other websites and join them and have fun and do what they're doing too. You know, you're you're never going to not get a, a good lesson or learn from somebody something. But if yeah. you're talking about real teachers that are going to break it down step by step, um, that's what I wanted to catalog. And, and fortunately, yeah. I've been successful at doing that. And soon I'll have um, everything that Freddie Gruber showed me, which is like explaining the technique of Buddy Rich up. So that's, it's geeky that's stuff. Awesome. It's for somebody that wants to, you know, really understand the difference between this wrist turn and this wrist turn. But yeah, if you're yeah. if you're going to college and you want to make a living at this, and you know, or you want to get into the A band, or you want to try and get a scholarship, we've got the information that'll that'll kind of get you there. So I'm real happy with it. Yeah, it's just so cool. It's for real drummers. It's very professional with the top drummers in the world. I can tell just from watching a ton of them. It's your baby. It's very obvious that you you are growing it and you're doing a great job as a fellow media person, you know, in the drum world, uh, who's obviously nowhere at that level as, as the drum channel, but it's, it's something for me that I look up to as, as a, a benchmark of quality. And, um, and I just think it's awesome. So I'll have links in the description, um, for all of that, for everything Don's talking about. And before we end, I want to really quick thank Brian Lancer, who originally connected me to Scott Donnell, who's at DW, um, and got this whole thing set up because, um, you know, you, you, Sometimes take for granted, it's not super easy to get to the man himself, Don Lombardi, just as sending a, an email on a you know form on the DW website. You have to get kind of introduced to a couple people, and I'm grateful that I was. So, um, Don, I know you have to hop off, but I just want to say a huge thank you for taking time. I'd love to have you back on. Um, I've got a couple episodes I'm going to send your way. One about Freddie Gruber that Bruce Becker did. That's uh, a very funny one that he does some impressions of uh, Freddie. Freddie, <laughs> he, he does it well. He was several years after I was with Freddie. I kind of had a, a yeah. little different vintage version of Freddie, but Bruce, sure. I know Bruce well. He does, he does a good job at it. That's true. <laughs> yeah. All right, Don. Well, thank you so much for being here. I've had a blast talking to you and hopefully you come back on the show another time and uh, keep up doing everything that you're doing. It seems to be working very, very well. So, uh, it's and congratulations again on what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing too, because you're 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 a player in what's going to be going on out there in the drum world. And the, these these things are going to be out there for a long time. So totally. So I thank you, Don. Thank you for inviting me to come on. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History, and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.